but where there's only 500 infertility clinics in the US and a few thousand specialized uh, reproductive endocrinologists, when we look at the issues around fertility, when we look at the number of people that need true infertility reactive treatment today, it's a numbers game. Like if we can all work together and use technology to support providing this information even further upstream so we can detect those red flags, on today's episode of Inside Reproductive Health, I interview Afton Vetri. She's the CEO of Modern Fertility. They're a startup, no longer a startup perhaps, in Silicon Valley that provides at-home fertility testing and moves some of the education further upstream by scaling it using technology. Before I get into my interview with Afton, I want to give today's shout out to Dr. Ravi Gata, who practices in Dallas, Texas. Dr. Gata likes to give me grief sometimes when I either fail a position too much. And so I'm not saying that this topic is one of those, but I want to give Ravi a shout out. So in my conversation today with Afton Vetri, we talk about venture capital, what it's like for a company that's on the periphery of the fertility space to raise money in Silicon Valley, and a little bit of the fundamentals behind that for those of you that are interested in forming a venture. And we also talk about how modern fertility get got started and how they educate patients and move some of the patient education further upstream, scaling it to a lot more people that can just be reached at the fertility clinic. I bring up the issue of how there's a lot of people in our field that are very well credentialed that often don't like ventures like these, not hers by name, but don't like ventures like these because they feel that some of that education is misplaced. I'm not a clinician. I can't say uh, but we do talk about that. And so I'll let you decide. You listen to this episode and you can let us know how you feel, but it's worth hearing out. So please enjoy this episode of Inside Reproductive Health with Afton Vetri. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. Ms. Vetri, Afton, Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health. Thank you for having me. I am excited to, to finally be here. You're, one, you're at the head of one of the rising stars in tech and fertility. And there's a lot of people in that sector because there's a huge gamut of companies that are really legit and going to change the scape of, of fertility. And there's also a, a whole lot of very, very nascent companies that are really kind of just looking for their shot. A lot of them ask if they can be on the show. I kind of, we're, we're changing the format to where we've changed the format to mostly they would have to be sponsored content. But when I talked to your team, I said, okay, get Afton on here. One, because I do think that modern fertility really has gotten a lot of notoriety. So there, there's that. But the second is that anybody who ever gets stuck in a car with me for eight hours automatically gets an invite onto the show. There's, that's one way of doing it. So, and you've, you've checked both of those boxes. Uh, I love it. Well, I couldn't think of a more fun person to be stuck uh, in a 
very intense snowstorm with for eight hours. So I am, I'm very glad we made it through and that there was a very exciting fertility conference on the other side. Uh, So give us a bit of, of the background of, of modern fertility. We're going to, we're going to talk about all of the, the things that you do, but any entrepreneur sees something in the marketplace that they either perceive as missing or needs to be presented in a different way, work in a different way. What was it that you saw with modern fertility? Yeah. So, you know, I think that often in entrepreneurship, there's kind of this, you know, big aha moment. And then that kind of like catapults someone forward into to figuring out a company. And like, maybe that exists and maybe people just wake up with those thoughts. But I think in healthcare, uh, it's a little bit more complicated because there's so many incentives at play. And I think, you know, with your introduction and just the, the fact that, you know, there, there's a lot more activity in this space, I think that that's amazing because they're, is so much innovation that's needed in women's health, uh, but it's also ca- can be scary because I think there, especially in fertility, there is a very large self-pay demographic uh, with very high uh, willingness and ability to pay. And that means that there, again, can be a lot of incentives at play. And so I think, um, you know, my experience in really thinking about the, the fertility space was just taking a step back thinking a lot about the customer journey, thinking a lot about uh, clinicians and uh, physician journeys and and starting with my my homework. And I I think I had a head start there because my introduction to the whole fertility space was back when I worked at private equity. And uh, I was leading the diligence for a roll-up of IVF clinics and labs. Uh, But then I kind of left private equity, went into digital health, women's health, personalized medicine startups, for the next portion of my career. And when I took a step back from all of that, realized that I was waiting until later in life to start my own family and that I wanted those baseline tests that I had learned about back in the day, I realized that they weren't easy to, to get. Uh, but then I actually spent time shadowing in an infertility clinic. I spent time talking to all of the women in the clinic. I spent time talking to the financial team. I spent time um, understanding um, you know, who comes in the door, who converts, who doesn't. And I think you know, when really identifying the area that I can make the most impact as, you know, totally upstream uh, at the the point of fertility information and shifting the dialogue, to me, it was a, a win-win uh, for for really the, the broader ecosystem. So I think just lo- lots of uh, different factors went into to that decision. I want to ask you about the the delivery of upstream, but first there was something that you said, which you felt that that baseline testing wasn't easy to get. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So I think, you know, when I was, um, in private equity and kind of going through, okay, what's the, the customer journey? Okay. You call the clinic. Okay. You get that console. Okay. You come in, you, um, do at at the time it was full day three labs. Now I know there's some clinics that are doing, you know, AMH and ultrasound on, on any day, but it was kind of, you know, working through that, that whole process. And so, you know, back in private equity, I was learning the customer journey, but also the science of why, because it's really important to understand the clinical significance and cost implications of all of these different tests. And so, you know, fast forward to, um, you know, when I 
realized that I wanted more information. I wanted more tools to think about my fertility because I was heads down um, working on my career. And so I asked my OBGYN, like, hey, um, I'm interested in ordering this panel of tests. I want, you know, I'm not on hormonal birth control. I want AMH, FSH. Uh, I have an irregular cycle. Like I just, I, I want the thyroid levels. Like how, just can you please order this, this um, range? They said, no, you're not actively trying and failing to conceive. Um, so we're not going to improve these tests for you. So I had to go schedule a consult in an infertility clinic, which was fine. Uh, but then, you know, it took me a while to pinpoint day three, take that requisition, go into, I think it was like a quest or lab core, get the test done, bring it back. But then the, the power of having that consult, the power of having that conversation with that physician, myself, my partner, and thinking about my timeline, um, was just so empowering to me. I got diagnosed with PCOS as a part of that process. Uh, but even more than that diagnosis, I thought about my timeline and what I wanted for really the first time. And I think having tools, having information and having the support system to do it was really the, the aha moment for me. And then when I started talking to other women, uh, all across the country, I started seeing that there was this aha moment for them of like, yes, I will pay, uh, money to do this. I will, I, I want to do this. I want to do this upfront. I need more tools. All of my friends are having issues. All of my friends are talking about this and I just want more information. And so why do you suppose that OB, GYN offices such as the one that you visited declined to do that was do those tests was it well because you're not trying to conceive they couldn't bill it for insurance is it just because it it's not something that they normally do they normally would have referred out to an REI anyway what's the bottleneck at the OBGYN level yeah. So I think it really depends on the OBGYN. I mean, for my um, particular OBGYN, I was actually quite surprised. We actually later started working with that clinic um, because we had another handful of practitioners there come to Modern Fertility and say like, hey, we're recommending to you to, to you know, so many of our um, patients that are asking about this. And we actually, you know, set up a whole program um, where, you know, we were made available and, and consults and, and kind of that um, preconception visit. And so, um, this one practitioner that, you know, I, I had before I started modern fertility and before I, you know, when I first moved to the Bay area, um, I, I think just was not, uh, equipped to have that conversation with me about fertility, uh, was not equipped to understand, had never didn't know what AMH was, didn't understand, uh, the value of that information and thinking about red flags and helping me think about my success for AV IVF or egg freezing, uh, maybe didn't have a relationship with, you know, an IVF clinic to think through it. And so what we found is that there, um, there's just quite a range, uh, with OBGYNs, but really in a 15 minute well visit appointment, there's just not a lot of time to talk about the nuances of fertility information and how it can translate to the very personal decisions around a family timing process. Uh, so I, I think, you know, when we have done all of our market research, there are just very uncomfortable questions about timing. It's very hard to get the latest statistics and translate them back. And then when you do get that information from the assays, that nuanced 
personalized information that's based on all of those hormones and just what it means for her. Um, that information is where could, there's new literature <laughs> published across the board, you know, every, every week. And so, um, I, I just think it, there's a, there's a big education gap that it's just going to take us time to fill and how can we use technology, um, access, um, and creating kind of economies of scale with, with this data and, and home testing platform to give this information to more women earlier. The answer might be in that economies of scale, but I imagine that there's some REIs listening that say, okay, well, we've been saying that for years, the patients <laughs> are coming to us and they don't have the testing and they don't have the proper education from the OB's office, but we do that. We, and maybe we call it a fertility snapshot. There's a few different names that, that people have their own branded names for, but we do AMH and FSAs testing. We do semen analysis for the male partner. And sometimes it includes a consult. Sometimes it doesn't. Maybe it includes a consult with a physician extender. Why isn't that a solution for, for the same demographic that you're reaching? Yeah, I think it's definitely a solution, but where there's only 500 infertility clinics in the U.S. and a few thousand specialized uh, reproductive endocrinologists, when we look at the issues around fertility, when we look at the number of people that need true infertility reactive treatment today, it's a numbers game. Like if we can all work together and use technology to support providing this information even further upstream so we can detect those red flags, we, we still see one in 200 women in our kind of slightly younger data set that have undetectable AMH levels that most of which go on later to work with their doctor and get diagnosed with POI. Like how can we start this conversation even more upstream because there will always be a role uh, in reproductive endocrinologists uh, will, will always be at, at and beyond capacity for quite some time. And so I think our view is how can we have a collaborative relationship where we are able to educate even more upstream to, to take on the onus. So, so that way, if someone does decide to move on and either pursue infertility treatment or pursue egg free freezing, they're going into that concept to that time with a valued reproductive endocrinologist and using that consult time in a really high leverage way. So instead of, you know, learning about what AMH is um, and learning about, you know, that we're bored with all of the eggs we're ever going to have, and that goes to almost zero menopause, how can you start out with that baseline and then use that conversation with your doctor to get medical advice to understand more of the, the nuances about the, the clinic. And then on the, um, I think for, for some of the, the clinics that we work with, it's, you know, instead of, it's really thinking about the workflow and if there could be a world where that customer experience kind of, you know, flowing through the, the clinic is, could be improved, um, you know, what, what does that look like and how could technology earlier testing and that information upfront create a better experience for the, the patient and then process uh, for the, the clinic? It's a paradox for the clinics, isn't it? One of my favorite REIs asked me one time, just over a cocktail, said, how do I get these patients that should have come to see me in three years earlier? How do I get them in that three years earlier? And th I, there's a, a, a number of different solutions. Yours is a very scaled and robust one. But, but even if the clinics are to invest in it, they just they don't have the time to in invest in that. And you can, you can address some of it with, with content and processes and, and clinics should, but almost every doctor listening, I suppose, probably has more patients than they know what to do with at this point. And so 
and, and they're saying, oh, how do we convert the patients that we have and serve the patients that we have? And so you're addressing something that I just don't think they have the collective bandwidth to, to address. But how do you work with clinics? <laughs> well, you know, really, really quick on the first part. I think that, yeah, it is really hard. Uh, let me tell you, it is really hard. And I'm sure this is not new news to you or, or any clinician listening. It is hard to change behavior from thinking about fertility as something that is reactive to something that is proactive. And it has taken us, you know, millions and millions of dollars. Uh, some of, you know, what I believe are the, the, the brightest minds and technology all across San Francisco to, to come together to focus 100% of our time every single day, you know, 24 seven in this startup environment, thinking about how we can build something upstream that she wants to engage with, how we can take fertility and move it into mainstream wellness so that we can start to have this more integrated conversation about women's health and fertility upstream. And so, uh, we, as a, a company, we don't provide medical advice. We don't, um, we, we don't diagnose any of these conditions that is truly focused on that kind of up upstream education, conversation, tools, and resources. We started with the modern fertility hormone test. And then now we also offer ovulation and pregnancy testing. So she can, you know, zoom in and, and understand other components of her, her cycle along with our, our free app, um, that lets her, her scan that semi-quantitative ovulation test. Um, but then, yeah, we, uh, love, uh, to, to collaborate with physicians and, and clinics. We, um, do, I, I think on the education side, um, AMAs and, and webinars, uh, and, you know, have, have thousands of our, our, uh, community and, and customers, um, tuning into, to those. Um, but yeah, I think there, there's a variety of ways that we've started to, to work with clinics. And I think that, um, you know, for, for us, uh, we do, you know, have clinics that are using, you know, modern fertility hormone tests that is approved as an LTT, LDT, but it's up to them kind of how they would like to integrate it in their workflows. Um, we do have clinics that are accepting, you know, those, uh, results and, and using that as a, a part of the kind of intake process dependent on, um, when those results were obtained. Um, we have, you know, others that, yeah, it's kind of a, a mix and match of, of how can we be helpful, uh, in thinking through that workflow. And then I think the reality is now we have just been so focused <laughs> upstream that, you know, one of the things that we need to look at this year is continue continuing to, to strengthen that relationship uh, with clinics, because the reality is that's the question that we get from <laughs> so many of our customers is, okay, um, like, what do you recommend? You know, what should I do from here? And so we want to be as, as helpful as, as possible in that transition. So in adding to their workflow to the, to the clinic's workflow or not, meaning, meaning joining up right before it, it can either be, okay, this person is coming in with their AMH and FSH and we can either accept this, or we can say, okay, this is good, but we want you to do our snapshot anyway. Sure. And you, you're talking about, uh, our preference on that is, I mean, we, you know, there, there is no international standard for AMH. And so dependent on if you're sending it out to quest, dependent on if you have your, you know, Beckman in your office or you're using, you know, our lab, we published our concordance study, uh, to show that our, you know, finger stick that you could do at home could be used interchangeably with a traditional blood blood draw that is live. I can, we can send out the, the, um, ACOP publication to, to anyone. Uh, but we've also done, um, we, we, we stand behind every single one of our results. And 
And with the volume that we're able to do today, we can do QC on a patch level. Our lab has CLIA and CAP accreditation. We, um, we believe in every single result, but the reality is that uh, dependent on um, the, the instrumentation that that clinic is using, there might be next steps from there. So when I talked about, you know, there, there could be a varied process it could be that we need to run, you know, a mini validation study between, you know, our test results and that lab to either demonstrate uh, full concordance um, between the two or some type of correction factor just based on the calibration that they're using. And so I think that that's the area that we're super flexible around. And it's really just taking, you know, the the work that we've done, the amount that we've kind of invested in the the lab operations and and science, and just making sure that that everyone is comfortable with our results. And so I think that that. Can can uh, take a variety of factors. And I think that, you know, what we've learned is just to be flexible and, and work with clinics and um, figure out how we can be the most helpful and support the best journey with uh, a patient. And I think for a lot of clinics, it can be helpful because our price point is $159 and it's kind of FSA and HSA eligible. So there's just kind of mix and match um, components that we can use and, and think about within a, a broader process. Someone could offer a consult on top of that sure. and uh, or male partner testing on top of that. And, exactly. Um, and so, so now you're focused a little bit more on that downstream connection because you're getting so much feedback of what do I do next? And uh, so you're, you're, you're focusing on, okay, how do we continue to make this a, a good transition to the fertility center or to the, or to the next logical step? But before well, I would we talk- say focus is an, uh, is, is an overstatement. I think we, we understand that that's a, a pain point. And I think we are committed to, to figuring that, that out because we know it's something that she's asking for, but, uh, yeah, as an, as an early stage, uh, company, there are just so many parts of the, the journey that we're continuing to work on. So it's definitely something that's on our radar radar that we're continuing to explore. But yeah, I think these are the types of conversations where we want to hear, I want to hear from you, what you think we should do. And I think we're constantly talking to uh, clinics. No, you don't and- because everyone's <laughs> going to have a different type of, uh, everyone's going to say you should focus on this. And I, I think what you said about the, the journey, there's so many facets to it. It can't be understated. It is so complicated. We're not just yeah. getting somebody into a bakery store to serve them a donut. This is, there's, there's so many different functions of the fertility journey. And really on my end, I'm really just looking at it through the fertility center yeah. and shortly before. Um, yeah. But it's, it, it, it's incredible. And, and so I was going to ask, do you feel like you're even upstream enough? Like, is this, because I, I suppose it could be a bottomless pit, right? You could start from kindergarten and, and talking about sperm and egg, I suppose. But do you feel like you're your upstream success has mostly been with the demographic of people who are almost ready and need more information and their OBGYN just isn't scaled to, to provide that for them? Or are you starting to, to really reach more of the 24-year-olds, I guess, the, the 21-year-olds? How, how yeah. is your upstream journey going? Yeah, no, that's a great question. So our average customer today is uh, 31.5 years old. <laughs> and that's the average, which means that we have the the full range from 21 to 45. So we have 
college students at 21 that are just, um, you know, more, more empowered than I was when I was graduating, graduating college that want every single piece of information about their reproductive health, because they believe that reproductive health is the last frontier in true equality. And they want every piece of information they can to think about how their reproductive health, think about how their family is going to fit in with their career. And they're, they're starting at 21. And we have the, the pockets of, of those very enthused uh, people with ovaries all the way to women um, that are, you know, 43 years old, where we'll get an email saying that, hey, I want three kids. I feel really healthy. I'm just starting to think about it. I wanna, um, I wanna take your test and 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 you know, learn more. And we're like, oh my gosh, like schedule, like schedule an appointment, you know, to tomorrow. Um, and so I think, you know, for for us, it's truly that full full range of of ages, of, of personas, um, with so many different journeys. And I, I think what's interesting is that uh, about 75% of our customers are one to three years away from actively trying to conceive and about a quarter just find us when they're, they're actively trying, but all of our efforts have really been focused on that upstream education. So we want to keep going earlier, but the, the challenge there is that that that's new, right? That's behavior change. And so it just takes, you know, time, effort, um, capital to, to continue to, to grow that portion of the market. Um, but, but yeah, I think that, you know, there, there are, other ways to continue to go even further upstream. Um, but we, it, it's really about kind of capturing her at the right point in time where she's ready to engage. And so we're constantly experimenting with going kind of up earlier. Uh, but I think it's interesting that our kind of average age today ties with the age of uh, average age of first birth in major metropolitan cities across the, the US. Um, I would hope to see over time that continue to skew earlier and earlier, because I think that that would just mean more tools um, and better success rates for women when they're they're having this conversation uh, earlier on. Seems to me like that's where the really large populace is and also just in line with what you're trying to, to solve for. What remains to be done with further down the chain with linking what you do with what fertility centers do? I, I overstated focus, but what remains to be done in your purview? Yeah, you know, well, I, I think... Really, and in, in, in starting modern fertility, it was having conversations with really, really smart reproductive endocrinologists and OBGYNs and reproductive psychologists, and you know, really thinking about fertility um, compared to other health conditions. And the reality that you know today we have this whole model, which is try and fail, and then only when you fail do you pursue things and, and treatment. And when you think about that relative to other health indications like that, that's just not, we can do better. And so, um, it was really important that when we were starting modern fertility as a fertility information company, we were kind of taking, um, taking the existing solutions, trying to apply technology and working with clinicians to bring them, you know, upstream in a really responsible way. Um, and, and constantly engaging in that feedback of, you know, how can we better, how can we be better and truly support your, your needs? Uh, but then combining that with, you know, where, where should this go? Um, so when we launched the company, um, we gave every single customer the ability to consent to have their anonymized data used in peer reviewed research. So customers still own all of their data, but they can press a button, uh, and sign up for an IRB approved protocol to, to have their data as a part of this pool. And so, uh, this year at, at ASRM, we were able to, uh, present, uh, publish and present a study talking about, I think, um, 
in this cohort, it was about 10,000 women and how uh, birth control impacted AMH um, levels. And just being able to look at some of these um, trends in a fertile patient population uh, with longitudinal biomarker data over many years, uh, it, it's we're, we're very interested in uh, specific research studies and collaborations in the near term. But the the vision here is really to take all of these biomarker endpoints, to take that combined with you know reported medical um, history, um, you know current. Um, feelings on, on lifestyle and, and all of those other markers and tie everything together and build out a better predictor of future fertility, something that could be predictive in some capacity at, at future outcomes to give women, you know, more tools into how to, to think about that future, because the, the, the reality is what we'll, we'll never have a full, you know, crystal ball in terms of, uh, the, the right time to start trying. And, um, if a, a woman will be successful in that journey, um, but we can do, you know, better upstream. And so our, our focus is, is kind of supporting the, the field with um, that, that type of, of research and, and vision for kind of better, better tools and, and resources upstream so the right people can get care faster. Okay, so here's the skinny. Just as your fertility group has advantages over other groups, your competitors also possess advantages over your IVF center that you don't have access to yet. Now you can say their consolidation model won't work or their lab sucks or their doctor's crazy or that low cost model cuts quality or who would ever get their fertility testing done from a food truck, but many of them are onto something. If you're not maximizing your own natural strengths and adapting to what the new patient demographic is demanding, then they start to do more cycles where you are, get better rates from insurance and vendors, take your patients and even your staff. We work to maximize those competitive advantages because Fertility Bridge is the only creative and business development firm that exclusively subspecializes in the fertility field. We have an entire team of people who help fertility centers attract and retain the right patients and nothing else for a living. So we can help only your competitors and then they have an even bigger advantage or we can help you too. Our initial consulting engagement is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's only $5.97 and we equip your partners and leadership with the foundation to leverage your competitive strengths, not mimicking someone else and not let your competitors have an unfair advantage. There's no long-term commitment whatsoever and there's a 100% money back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com, have them sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic, and I will see you and your partners on Zoom. You've emphasized that modern fertility does not provide medical advice. You're not replacing the, the clinical experience. I still see so many physicians that are worried about that from anyone who's even in the broad view of the space. And I've never heard anyone use modern fertility as an example, but I have heard another company that we would all know and who I perceive to be very genuine as contributing to this field. And last year at ASRM, I, I got in a straight up argument with someone at a, at, not in, not like at cocktail hour either, but at, uh, at one of you know the the symposium, and and then online there was a number of of other people that that felt that way that these are non clinicians people that didn't go to medical school people that didn't go to residency didn't do an REI fellowship that essentially all they want is 
data. And I know that some physicians will have that concern, whether you've, whether, whether you've done everything to earn that criticism or whether you've done nothing to earn that criticism. And I just know some that would go on your website after and look at physician expertise, physician expertise without the clinic price, F them, F this. And how do you assuage people's concerns? Yeah, well, I think it's really by inviting every piece of that criticism. And I'm glad that that criticism exists because I, I think that there are other companies offering testing in this space and others that do not have clinically sound advice that they're giving to customers that are not, that, that I don't believe are effective at pushing the, the space forward and giving uh, people with ovaries the, the best tools upstream. So, so I welcome and am glad that that uh, criticism exists exists uh, and is there because I, I think you need you you need that to to continue to make sure that the the best actors are are continuing to rise. So for us, it was really establishing a medical advisory board of reproductive endocrinologists of day one. <laughs> and so um, when you do our validate or when you do the the validated modern fertility hormone test at home, or um, we offer the option to go to a quest diagnostics facility, if you don't want to do the finger prick, both are interchangeable and both are the same price. And we stand behind both results. Uh, you get access to the modern fertility experience. And what we've done on the back end is we have uh, a technology platform that's able to customize every word of every sentence based on the results that you have back and your self-reported information. And what we've done is work with uh, many, many reproductive endocrinologists that have reviewed every version of every report that we're giving back and um, putting in, in, in front of our, our customers. And the way that those reports are created is that they are only based on peer-reviewed uh, medical journals and, and articles that meet our very specific citation bar, uh, and then ASRM and ACOG guidelines. And then we as a company um, don't take it on ourselves to provide uh, opinions on top of that. So let's say, let's say we decide to do a report on PGS and there's a ongoing debate <laughs> around, um, you know, should you do it? Should you not? How does it play a role in embryo selection? We would not say, Hey, this is what you should do. We would say, hi, like there, there's this debate going on. Here is this side. Here's this other side. Here is the area for future resource. We trust you customer to have all of this information and work with your doctor to make a decision that's right for you. So as a, a company and as a brand, our mantra is kind of, you know, we, we trust women. We trust that women can handle having information that there doesn't need to be a doctor between, you know, women and information. And by the way, Google exists. So she's going to be looking for it <laughs> anyway. Um, so, so how can we have this clinically trusted neutral information and then empower her to have that, to spend the time to be her own health advocate and then to take that and have that more informed follow-up and in conversation with her doctor. So in all of our materials, it's education backed by literature, reviewed by uh, reproductive endocrinologists, reviewed by physicians with that kind of constant drumbeat of this is meant to inform a more uh, empowered conversation with your physician. You're providing so much more quality information. So I'm not comparing it to Google, but I am comparing, I, I suppose I am exploring the phenomenon of someone feeling like an expert because they've read, like I've, I've read these five studies and they're, they're sound studies, but now I feel like I know everything. And I'm, when I'm talking with someone that's read 5,000 studies and gone through 15 years of higher education to be there. So yeah, maybe it's, you, I, one could argue that it's not your responsibility, but how do you temper that 
like this is just the beginning of the education. Yeah, well, I think there's a lot of misinformation on Google. And so I think that, um, you know, as folks go deeper in, like you can do a simple Google search on a lot of topics. And it's pretty clear that when you get all of this conflicting information up front, Google, Google might not be your best friend in this journey. And it's really hard to navigate it. We have a whole clinical team that is reviewing and responsible for staying up to speed with all of the latest medical information, uh, probably, and work with reproductive endocrinologists that are practicing every day to, to try to be that pulse, to be that drumbeat, to do all of the hard work of distilling and navigating and putting that all in one place. So that's really kind of the, the role that, that we've tried to take. And yeah, I, I don't think in the world connected world that we live in that, that anyone can, can control the action of a consumer. I mean, when you think about, I don't know, you can always go back to, to pregnancy testing, you know, when pregnancy testing was uh, invented, uh, physicians at the time didn't believe that women could handle finding out that information from home. Um, today, you know, if you go and get your lab results on, you know, LabCorp, you can download them from their online portal, um, cancel your appointment with the doctor and never have that follow-up. Like we, we have all of the access to this information at our fingertips. And so I think we have to, to realize that if uh, a millennial woman wants this information, she will go get it. And how can can we just make that a better experience for her that ends in a better outcome? And I, I think for us, it's accepting that that is where the world is going and that there, there is a, uh, a more kind of effective way for, for her and for a physician that that, that process can, can unwind. Yeah, I'm going to em emphasize the point that the inf information is out there, good, bad, and, and perhaps neutral everywhere. It's already out there anyway. You can either create something to give people access to better quality information, or you can leave them to what's already out there. But the idea that we shouldn't try to provide them with any type of information that can't be given directly by the clinician is simply, it's just, it, it's just simply futile. And that, that's the criticism that I often hear of the other organization who I also feel is doing a, a really good job that, well, people should be getting this information from their clinician. They've done such a good job to provide so much better than uh, what you might find in, in, on the other holes, the rabbit holes that live on Google and, and the internet. So I, I wanna emphasize that point. We've talked a lot about what you're doing to advance research and to move further upstream for people becoming aware of fertility and their health. I'm interested in the business side as well. And I think our listeners will be too, because a lot of people don't know what venture capital is. Often they, they use PE and VC interchangeably. And I think it's interesting because you've, you've worked for a PE firm and you've worked for a company that's raised money through VC. Uh, I've explained the difference uh, when I had David Sable on the show. So if you have a better definition, please correct me, but private equity, typically firms with, uh, firms with a lot of capital that purchase existing businesses to either to either just uh, flip in a few years or improve uh, efficiencies to improve profit and then sell, um, where venture capital often raising money to start something anew and scale that. Is that, uh, would you correct that definition? No, I think that that's a, that's a great definition. I think that, you know, 
private equity is basically looking at the cash flow of a business, looking at real numbers and real metrics, thinking about, you know, a, a broader growth strategy, combining other growth strategies, which can be, you know, business improvement, mergers and acquisitions, other, other things um, with kind of a, you know, five to, to seven year, like improvement and, and exit window on that, like already established business. Uh, and every private equity firm has kind of a different, you know, strategy and, and threshold of how they, they buy into to companies at what percent ownership and, and what those goals are. And yeah, venture, um, well, venture takes a, a lot of, of different stages and there's seed stage funding, there's venture, there's growth venture. Um, but I think the way that I like to, to think about it is that for, yeah, someone to, to come in and, and bet on an idea, it's basically, you know, how, what is that idea? What's the market and how's it going to change the world? And so um, I put all of my own money uh, went to, to zero and, and starting modern fertility, but then it was just uh, expensive to, you know, set up and run a whole validation, develop all of our technology infrastructure. Um, and we didn't know if anybody was going to buy our product. We had, you know, market research, we had validations, we had uh, conversations, we had a lot of gut, my gut. <laughs> Um, but we really had to, to convince um, investors. Uh, I, I did not have enough money in my bank account to kind of fund ahead of, you know, when we would start getting sales, you know, what that future would look like. And then as we continue to think about venture, um, it, it's basically, uh, you know, how, how much do you need to invest until you can get to a profitable state? And then if you need to invest in the company beyond for its future growth beyond the cash that you're generating today. Um, how do you continue to, to grow that, that vision um, to make a, a major change in, in the world and in society? And so we, we had to raise uh, venture at the, the beginning stage of our, our journey. I'm interested in that process. A lot of times I'll hear practice owners saying, I keep getting calls from these venture capital firms that say, it's not venture capital. Venture capital is not trying to buy your practice. Those are private equity firms. But you, on the other hand, have you started off with your, your own money, and then you need to do approach uh, investors. That, that is venture capital. You said, did you have sales before you first approached VC? Yeah. So, oh gosh, did we have sales? So I think we were in the midst of starting our initial beta. And I think we had some pre-orders. And so basically, you know, my mindset at the, the beginning was, you know, I, I didn't, I, I was very fortunate to, you know, have a, a career in, in savings before this point. So it was a personal decision for me to, to take that money and, and put it into this new venture and get it as far as I possibly could and, and develop as much traction as I possibly could before I, I went out and tried to, to raise. And basically when you're, you're raising capital, you're, you're selling a portion of uh, the company. So when I started out, I own hundred percent. And then for every amount of capital I want to raise, I have to kind of sell off a, a portion of that. And so starting Modern Fertility, it, I, 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 I absolutely believe in this company, this product. I, I want to spend my, my life in this space. And so it was really important for me that I was kind of pushing this vision for it as far as I possibly could. And then um, using that point in time to raise uh, venture capital. And ideally I want to sell the least amount of my company for the most amount of money. So having traction there is important, but yeah, I mean, at the, the earliest stages, there's, there's very little traction <laughs> from a, a dollar standpoint. 
in. And it's just, um, yeah, a, a lot that goes into that process. And I think for us, um, oh gosh, in, in 20, early 2017, when we were starting to raise, the majority of the venture capitalists I spoke with <laughs> were very confused. They were like, okay, so you want to sell a fertility hormone test to people that aren't trying to get pregnant. Like what, what is this <laughs> and what, what are you doing? Uh, so it, it was not the, the easiest process. When you talked about your investment and one thing that really made me like you is when we were going to this conference, you were speaking at it. So one night you had in the fancy hotel through the conference and then the other night you had like an Airbnb or some hotel on the uh, across town or something. And I was like, that's that's cool, because a criticism that small business owners often have of of people that raise money in Silicon Valley, for example, is, well, Yes, they've got these big companies, but not earning any damn money because they're just raising money to the next round and they're just spending it like it's going out of style while well, we're doing everything to, to bootstrap. And so I, I, I thought that that was cool. And <laughs> uh, actually, I stole one of the rooms. It, I, I had booked a separate hotel both nights and I stole one of the ro- prepaid rooms of someone that got stuck in the snowstorm and, and couldn't. So did I. It was cool. So, yeah, that was. I hope you took a bar uh, of soap yeah. too, just to really. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, when you raise venture, when you start your own company, uh, there are some decisions that you can make, and then there are some decisions that are made for you. And I think that, you know, the mantra that, that we took when starting Modern Fertility is that we are, are truly focused on this, you know, broader vision of enabling every single person to think about their fertility proactively. And so what that meant was just we're, we're scrappy. We uh, want every single dollar that we have to be going towards uh, research, to be going towards education. And so from, from day one, um, you know, Carly and I literally, the only salaries my co-founder, we, we paid ourselves were to cover rent. <laughs> and then uh, as we, we started to grow, um, we started to, to pay ourselves slightly more, but my my, my salary now is uh, significantly less than my first job out of school. And that'll change. And it's a very personal decision to, to do that at this point. But, uh, and we could choose to, to pay ourselves more and we will over, over time. But I think it's just been this kind of, you know, mantra of, um, you know, what we're, what we're doing, why we're doing it and, and what's the best for our customers. And salary is just a, a small small part of that. Expenses are a small part of that, but I think it, it, it depends uh, of, of just how, how you're thinking about scale. Have you done two rounds so far? Oh gosh. So we are, I think three. Yeah. Three. <laughs> and when I've been speaking with this about Dr. Sable, it, his view is that venture capital is really underrepresented in the fertility field relative to other fields of healthcare. And I wonder why you think that is, is it, could it be just, do we need like a, just a smashing success? Because in other areas of just like all across the consumer market, people are wasting money in venture capital. People are just dropping money into companies that have no proof of concept. And because everybody's looking for the next Uber or Airbnb, and is it that Will will a smashing success change that trajectory? Is that is that what's required in your view? And if not, what is? 
Yeah. So I have been really encouraged to see the number of new companies that are starting in, in women's health and even just seeing the, the pretty aggressive rise of that over the past few years. And I think, you know, when we, you know, we're starting out, it was really, I, I, I remember having to redo my pitch so many times because I just had to spend so much time at the beginning of the conversation, you know, explaining the journey and, and really educating uh, venture capitalists. And, you know, I think for the, the most part, often the majority of venture capitalists are, are male, um, but even a lot of the, the females that I spoke with just weren't in the target demographic um, of, of the product. And so I think that, you know, as humans, our, our natural tendency is to, to follow, uh, you know, products that we use. Um, things that we can develop deep empathy with. And I think that there are some investors, um, like our, our first investor was, was male, uh, Finn at First Round Capital. He's amazing. And he was a product thinker or is a product thinker. And he was able to really think about this and the pain points in the existing system and, and see the, the future and the vision that we had. Um, but I think it's, it's really specific to every investor. But I think now, um, I think that there are more success stories happening. I think that the purchasing power of uh, women, I think thinking through women's health, I, I, it is definitely growing relative to, to where it was just a, a few years ago. And, you know, now we get lots of inbound messages as opposed to the, the opposite, which is, is quite a shift. Uh, so I think it's, it's exciting and I'm, I'm optimistic about the, the future. Maybe we spend just one minute talking about that relationship with investors, because there are a lot of people that are listening, many of whom are physicians, many of whom are physicians that either work in larger practice or own their own practice that always have some idea that they say, I'm going to get investors, I'm going to do this and say, okay, let's see you do it. But if there's 10 of those people listening, I think one of them will do it. If there's 50, I think a, a handful of them might do it. And this relationship that one can have with investors where you, as you said, you're giving away part of your company. Someone else now owns part of your company. You talked about one investor that had really insightful product knowledge. How do you, how do you navigate this dynamic that if people are going to go this route, they're going to have to think about these parallels, which is, Yes, these investors have lots of experience and there's times when I'm going to want to listen to them versus this is the vision that I, I don't want to lose track of just because someone's giving me money. How do you navigate that? Yeah, no, I, I think it's something that's really important to just spend time on because I think just like, you know, inviting a partner into a practice or having a co-founder in a company, uh, venture investors, especially if they're joining your board, it's a, a relationship um, in, in many situations. Um, it's a, a marriage that you might have for, for quite some time. Uh, so I think, you know, dependent on where the idea is, dependent on where the company is, can influence the kind of contractual terms that you have with an investor. So often in private equity, investors are coming in with control um, based interests where, you know, they, they own the company and they have the ability to decide who the leadership team is. So they might be able to control and fire the, the CEO or founder or different parts of the, the team. And then in, in other situations, often in the, the earliest stages of a venture, that control lies with the founders. Um, and then investors, uh, major investors have just particular rights uh, within the, the term sheet. But I think for us, you know, as we launch and then continue to scale, we were really lucky in that we we had traction, we had numbers that we could show. And so when we were out raising, we were, were able to really spend the time and get to know investors and really understand if, if 
you know, our, our vision for where the company would go was aligned with those investors. And I think, you know, in this space in particular, there are a lot of different ways to make money. And there are a lot of short-term ways to make money that are often not at the best interests of the, the customer. And it was really important to me in starting this company that we, we weren't going to take those shortcuts, that we were truly going to invest in the, the platform, which would be a longer term, riskier strategy. But I was really looking for partners that were committed to that discussion up front. And so I, I feel incredibly lucky for the investors that we've brought on and the collaborative relationship that we, we have. Um, but I think it, it really depends <laughs> on, on just, you know, the, where the, the company is and in stage for kind of, you know, what that relationship is contractually, the value, um, and time that investor can spend with the, the company. And then, you know, what that, that looks like on a go forward basis. For those listeners that enjoyed this part of the conversation, I think you also want to listen to the episode that I did with Taylor and Jeff from Engaged MD, because between Fertility Bridge, Engaged MD, and Modern Fertility, those are three completely different ways to finance and fund a, a launching business. And uh, many of you are thinking about launching a side venture or a new venture. So after venture, how would you want to conclude with our audience who's mostly practice owners and REI physicians, and then some other executives in the field, whether it has to do with modern fertility's vision for the field or venture capital and the forces that are, are bringing everything together? How would you want to conclude to our audience? Oh gosh. Well, first I'd want to say thanks. And that this was just so fun to have a, a conversation. Um, second, yeah. If, if there's a practitioner um, listening that uh, would like to work with modern fertility in some way, offer fertility hormone testing, get involved with us in, in any other capacity, uh, email me. Uh, my email is afton at modernfertility.com. And, and I'll put you in touch with the, the right team on, on our side to, to chat through. Um, I want to say thank you to all of the reproductive endocrinologists and, and clinics that we're already working with today. It is just so cool to see modern fertility and this information, just, you know, making a, a difference and providing more access in the ecosystem. And it just, I think, especially amidst COVID, it is just so cool to see practices taking, taking this as an opportunity to think more about practice workflow um, costs and, and just efficiency there. So Yes, let, that's that's awesome. Um, and then, yeah, I think you know, final thoughts on the the VC side are, you know, there's spending the time to get up to speed. I think that you know, VC is kind of you know into a bucket. Venture, pure venture capital is looking for you know a very large return, which means running your company in a very specific way. There's also uh, if if there is a certain market opportunity and a certain outcome and kind of a lifestyle oriented business oriented with a the company. There are different capital structures that can be used to raise that upfront capital to, to make it happen. And so I think just, you know, doing the research on, on what the different approaches are to go from zero to one will really impact um, ultimately the, the success of the venture and the, the pressure that is on, you know, different capacities of it. And so I think, you know, spending the time there um, is, is well worth it. And happy to be a resource to anybody and in, in thinking through those trade-offs. Afton Vetri of Modern Fertility, thank you for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. Thanks for having me. This was a blast. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. 
If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.